Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel, taking time out from their lucrative other jobs. <laughs> Naomi Smith is Chief Executive of Best for Britain. You should be paid three times more. Hello, Naomi. <laughs> Hello, it's lovely to be back in the actual studio. Um, the Tory MP for Windsor, Adam Afria, is facing bankruptcy proceedings over unpaid taxes. Potentially, he would have to step down, triggering yet another by-election. Uh, this story was first rumoured back in 2019. The, the tax issue goes back a few years. What's going on here and why is it an issue now? I mean, as with everything with the Conservative Party, uh, this is pretty murky and unclear. Um, the current petition for bankruptcy is the result of HMRC chasing him for a typically evasive statement on his behalf described as complex reasons <laughs> relating <laughs> to his past business interests. Mm. Um, but look, if it's only uh, parliamentary rules that that means he faces a by-election, he can probably take comfort in the fact that the Prime Minister will probably just change the rules so that he doesn't have to. So this is still a story in progress, but there are looming by-elections in three safe Tory seats. Owen Paterson's North Shropshire, the late James Brokenshire's Old Bexley and Sidcup, and David Amos's South End West. Opposition parties won't contest the latter out of respect for Amos. But what should we be looking out for in the other two uh, mm. if, if a kind of Tory defeat is too much to hope for? Yeah. Well, they are very safe Conservative seats. Both won with over 60% uh, of the vote at the last election. Um, and Best of Britain's current uh, polling, which was done before the Slee scandal spoke, but is only a couple of months old, are both sort of showing very clear signs that, that they would be Conservative holds. We did look at unity candidates and whether they would have an impact in those seats. Yes, they closed the gap, but the gap is so big in those sorts of seats that it, it, it's unlikely. That said, by-elections throw up odd results. We know this, we've seen that. And that's partly because Tory voters will feel more liberated outside of a general election when they're not deciding who goes into number 10 to protest vote. Whereas obviously at a traditional election, if they sort of fear that they, the government might topple, they hold their nose and, and back somebody. So in terms of things to look out for with them, I think people will be looking to see what vote share Reform UK get. That's the latest iteration of Brexit party under Tyson Farage and of course the Lib Dems who are sort of these notorious by-election victors uh, particularly uh, against Conservative candidates um, as some kind of indication of how badly this Lee story is affecting the Conservatives as we head ever so slightly closer towards general election. Feels like it's still mm. quite a long way away. And hello to commentator Alex Andreev. And notorious by-election victor. I like that. <laughs> Um, Alex, the government has announced that all NHS staff in England will need to be fully vaccinated by next April. At the moment, 89% of staff already are, but 103,000 workers are not. Similar mandates have been introduced in France, Italy, Canada, New Zealand, parts of the US. Uh, but health unions here oppose the idea and say that persuasion is preferable. What do you make of this policy? Well, <laughs> I don't think there's much disagreement that persuasion is preferable. I don't think anyone is saying, oh, don't bother trying to persuade them, just abduct them and jab mm. them. Um, I mean, the question is, what do you do with the the ones that remain unpersuaded? Um, and and that, for me, throws up the question of whether someone who works in a healthcare environment has a higher duty of care to the people yeah. that they treat. And in that, I see a lot of 
good arguments actually for a mandate because when it comes down to it, if someone I loved was being treated and I had a choice uh, between them being treated by a team that's fully vaccinated and a team that might be only 89% vaccinated, I know which I would choose. Well, also I think that you, that you could expect them to be uh, pretty into medical science. Yeah. But, but the of timing of it is curious, I have to say, to say they have to be vaccinated by 1st of April next year, because it seems to me that by that point, the NHS will be over the sort of win mm-hmm. winter, winter um, tight point. So I think they might be doing it in the same way that they did, um, you know, passports for pubs and bars as a sort of way to encourage another further little burst of bookings. Oh, like with young people, like you can't get yeah, into yeah, a nightclub. Yeah, yeah. Gonna which, you... which they kind of never did, but they threatened it. And that saw a little spike. I'm uh, pretty hardline on this. Um, and I actually did a, a, a story recently talking to somebody who, a behavioural scientist, um, who was working on um, vaccination persuasion in Jersey. Mm. And he says, there's a lot of people, there's people, there's a section, majority, that are up for it straight away. Then you've got a kind of squishy section who are, are persuadable. And then you have a hardcore of deniers. And I think if you're looking here, you're talking about 89, 90% already vaccinated. I don't think that much of the people, many of the people left are the squishy ones. Mm. And frankly, get another job if you're not willing to be vaccinated yeah. in the NHS. Maybe medicine is not for you. Could I just ask, Alex, though, because you've looked at this story more than I have. As I understood it, obviously 89% is very, very high mm. as a percentage compared to the population average. And it, are, are... No, the, the population is round about 89% on first dose and about right. 78% on second dose. So it's not outrageous. But is it, is it majority NHS stuff or social care stuff? Because I, as I understood uh, it, it had been, yeah, it had no, been I've got, together. I've got the figures here. So it's 73,000 NHS staff and 38,000 social care staff. Ah, right, right. Um, and uh, it, the breakdown when you look at the total numbers is roughly the same, actually. <laughs> okay, interesting. And quickly, David Frost presented his latest statement to the House of Lords on negotiations with the EU on Wednesday. Um, As we discussed uh, with David Gork recently, there are many David Frosts. Um, (laughs) And this one uh, was quite nice, Um, ending by saying there's a real opportunity to turn away from confrontation. Uh, he's a, it's flowers in the rifle barrels, David Frost. <laughs> um, is this just guff? No, it's a serious. It's no, this is a serious walking back of the threats. The way the government was talking about it was like Article 16 is imminent in the last in the next few weeks. And what's happened now, I think, is it's been kicked in the medium term and with loads of hoops to jump through before we get to that. So they say they will issue a paper explaining why the negotiations haven't blah, 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 blah. But three things have happened very, very quickly. The practical suggestions that the EU made to eliminate 80% of checks, I think, took the government by surprise. They didn't expect it to be uh, so generous and so far-reaching. And so I think that has weakened their legal case for triggering Article 16. The, the second thing that happened is that the EU have briefed very aggressively that if we trigger Article 16 in a way that seeks to collapse the whole protocol, they will react 
in force. And I think that has made people think twice, especially since Ireland are actually making preparations for it. Mm. This is not just hot air. And the third thing that happens that late last night, there was a congressional statement calling on the UK, and I quote, to abandon this dangerous path and commit to implementing the protocol in full. So I think pressure from all sides has made them go, whoa, 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 no, we, no, we it's weren't a congressional saying... statement. The US. Well, it was, US. yeah, a US congressional statement. It wasn't, uh, um, Congress has voted on this issue uh, and has unanimously approved the protocol. Uh, this was about 18 months ago. This was from like the heads of the, you know, the European Affairs right. uh, uh, Committee and et cetera, et cetera. So once again, it's the EU and the US issuing, saving us from our own bloody government. a joint statement saying, don't do it. This week on the show, Boris Johnson marched his troops up the hill to defend Owen Paterson from the Standards Committee and promptly left them up there when his government <laughs> U-turned and Paterson quit. Now, Tory sleaze is the biggest story around and backbenchers are furious. How did the government achieve such an amazing clusterfuck? Then we'll be talking to climate scientist Professor Peter Stott about COP26, climate modelling and his run-ins with the deniers. We've also got a special guest crossover from a brand new podcast from the House of Oh God, What Now? Arthur Snell will be joining us to tell us all about Doomsday Watch, which is out now and very good. And on the extra bit for Patreon backers, we'll be asking, what is the point of political cartoons? Before we get started, don't forget our next live show in London on Wednesday the 8th of December. Join Naomi, Dorian, Ian and me at the Leicester Square Theatre for Ho, 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 God, What Now? <laughs> Thank you, Brian Blessed. <laughs> they used to call me the Greek Brian Blessed, you know, Thanks. at drama school. They still should. <laughs> Our special festive celebration of Britain's wonderful year and all our favourite moments from Matt Hancock's face-hugger impression <laughs> to Dominic Raab failing to check the sea's opening times. <laughs> Tickets are going to be scarcer than HGV drivers, so visit com to get yours. And Patreon people, remember, your ticket discount still works, so join us for copious holiday cheer with a good dollop of festive fury. First this week, the government U-turned straight into a brick wall. After imposing a three-line whip on its MPs to overhaul the parliamentary standards watchdog and prevent the suspension of Erin Patterson, the plans were put on hold the next day, a fact that Patterson learned hilariously from Laura Kunzberg while he was in Tesco, leading him to resign. Boris Johnson and his outriders were bullish about the vote last week, but it's all gone terribly wrong. Sleezers on the front pages every day and Johnson is facing calls to apologise. Naomi, simple question. Do you think that the Patterson story would have fizzled out if not for the Leadsom Amendment, the attempt to save him? <laughs> if I'm to remain consistent uh, with my pessimistic and completely inaccurate prediction from last week, <laughs> um, I'm inclined to think it would have. Um, I think a couple of the, well, probably about three things that gave this legs. One was Patterson's sort of complete lack of contrition. Uh, absolute the refusal. The interviews he gave the night before. It was oh, amazing. I'd do, I mean, do it again. Uh, exactly. Yeah, do yeah, it again. Bring it on, bring it on. Um, uh, you know, uh, oh, <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> repeated wrongdoing. Like, uh, like just, just, yeah, any acknowledgement of it, none. Um, the second there was the government default readiness to slip him off the hook, which is probably why Patterson didn't acknowledge his wrongdoing, because if he did, why would the government be trying to get him off? But I think the main reason it's really stuck is because it is so easy to understand. Like, it, you can sum it up in 12 words. Man took money, 
broke rules, government changed rules to get him off. And I think that goes a long way to explain why the Daily Mail jumped on it as well. Unlike some of the bullying allegations and things that was a bit more nuanced as to what had actually happened, Mm -hmm. it was just so clear-cut and so easy that the right-wing press hooked onto it and that was it. Now, a three-line whip is no small thing. Uh, You have to resign a ministerial post Mm -hmm. um, if you break it. How much sympathy do you have for the MPs who are now furious about being left in the lurch by Johnson? Very little. Right. Very, very little. Uh, an MP's primary duty is to the country, to the people who elect them, to democracy and parliament, not to their party. That is like a fourth or fifth order obligation. Um, and in theory, <laughs> in theory, <laughs> where do the other employers come in that? I mean, look for a good government, <laughs> these priorities should overlap more times um, than they don't, but they rarely seem to with with Johnson and Co. Um, and I don't know if you heard the story of Christian Wakeford MP. Um, he's one of the new Redwall Tory MPs, I think Berry South, um, who after abstaining on the vote in the lobby reportedly, and this was reported in the Times, approached Patterson in the lobby and called him a see you next Tuesday. Wow. In the lobby. Um, and I'm sorry, Christian, <laughs> if you're listening, which I'm sure he is not. Um, expletives after the fact don't count. You know, he abstained. But if he knew it was wrong, um, he should have voted against it with the other 13 Conservative MPs that were brave enough to do that. I, th- I just think the main problem that he and others have had with it, these these backbenchers who are now sort of crying foul because they were whipped and, you know, and, and then the government rode back from it. Um, it's because it, it, it's hurt their re-election. And, you know, some of them, like like Wakeford, only had a 400, well, only have a 400 vote majority in their seats. So they're just worrying about themselves I, rather than the big principle issue I would say that if I was in charge of Hansard, I would asterisk his abstention. Yeah. <laughs> Then told subject of the (laughs) the amendment that he was a C word. Like I do think that should be that's that's not. not... I don't think Hansard pick up the lobby the lobby conversation. No, it's a shame. shame. It's a shame. Alex, the papers, including the Tory papers, are on the hunt for dodgy MPs with lucrative second jobs. The Mail led with Geoffrey Cox working from the British Virgin Islands for a month when he should have been in Parliament. In fact, he's only spoken in one Commons debate since February 2020. He used to be such a such a fixture of the podcast. Um, in the past, as Naomi says, they've given government corruption a pass. What's changed? What's what's awakened their moral ardour? So I keep going back to the 90s Tory sleaze thing. And I keep going back to the expenses scandal. And I keep making this point that retrospectively, things become a point in time. But if you look at them back then, they they took place over a period of months. Mm. These things are cumulative. So Tory sleaze didn't happen overnight. The expenses scandal went on for over a year. Mm. It was in the papers. And so actually what we're seeing now is the culmination of a series of stories about sleaze and a number of things that I think have upset different bits of Johnson's support. So the new Redwall voters and MPs are seeing no sign of levelling up. Uh, Instead, they have to defend cuts Mm -hmm. to universal credit. The Southern MPs, many of whom are defending tiny majorities, are hearing all the talk about infrastructure up north and seeing no money. The traditionally neoliberal quarters of the press are not happy with a high tax and spend Tory government. That's not what they signed up for. The traditional sort of dutiful Tories, because there are many of them, are not happy with a government that is behaving indecently, frankly. And everyone 
everyone is unhappy about an administration that combines being incredibly bullish in its reaction and then crumbles at the first sign of opposition. <laughs> it's a weird hangover from the Cummings era, mm. I think. It's left them with the instinct to say, fuck you to any kind of criticism, but they don't have the metal to see it through. The moment there is a backlash, they just U-turn. And that leaves the people that you ask to go out to the media to defend you, mm. to go in in a particular lobby in the House of Commons, looking like fucking idiots, mm. frankly. Well, there's been uh, backbenchers, as you point out, are increasingly restive. Um, Vice chair of the Tory party, Andrew Bowie, who uh, has a marginal Scottish seat, um, resigned mm. uh, on a matter of principle. Chief Whip Mark Spencer has apparently been briefing MPs that the order for the whip came from Johnson, not not him, Gov. Is this a sort of serious breakdown in Johnson's control over a party that basically doesn't like him? I really do think it is because a government with a majority of 80 mm. shouldn't be in this kind of constant retreat. Mm. And they are, and they have been for really quite months since the Hancock resignation. I think they've been on the back foot. And now that the polls are beginning to turn, they sense danger that this could turn into a death spiral. I mean, Andrew Bowie resigned yesterday as vice chair of the Tory party. Directly, he says this had nothing to do with the Patterson affair, but every single unnamed contact of his <laughs> is briefing the press that, that it, it was, was about right. that. Right. Uh, Spencer has also been implicated now in the Jeffrey Cox affair because Jeffrey Cox's statement is saying that I flew to the Virgin Islands and used the COVID exemption to vote by proxy with the chief whip's Commission. blessing that I cleared it with a chief whip. So there's a kind of internal implosion going on. And it's delightful to see, frankly. Um, Naomi, it is. It is fun. It's nice. Um, let's start with Cox, Naomi. Like Johnson and Raab, Cox has said in a statement it should be up to constituents to punish uh, corrupt MPs. Obviously, he didn't call himself corrupt. But, you know, <laughs> it's up for MPs to make their, their call. But he's got... Uh, not a majority of over 60%. He literally mm -hmm, has over 60% mm -hmm, of the vote in his seat. So when parties matter much more than individuals, and we saw this in, say, say Beaconsfield, yep. where Dominic Grieve, you know, a wonderful, dutiful, as far as I can tell, sort of fairly impeccable MP, was ejected from the Tory party and stood as an independent, voters just went for Joy Morrissey, who is a lunatic. <laughs> so clearly it's not, that's not no. how voters behave. So is this just, is this just an obvious kind of bullshit response. Even if North Shropshire wasn't a very safe Tory seat, which it is, then I think this stance is farcical for both Johnson and Rob, and they mm. know that it is. And they know that it's because of our antiquated voting system that even the vast majority of the country, thinking they're crooks and should be out on their ear, could still pull off a majority for them, albeit maybe not necessarily an 80-seat majority. You know, let's just face it, this isn't good democracy. And that is why it is so important at the next election uh, that, that we get the opposition parties to bloody well work together mm, to mm. win and deliver voting reform, because that is the only way we've got any catch chance in hell of sort of ridding ourselves of, of MPs. I that, mean, that unpacking, like this. unpacking that sort of argument rationally, mm. 
Does that mean that an MP, the rules for an MP in a safe seat, give much more leeway than one in a marginal who could be injected mm-hmm. oh, yeah. much I've more easily? Absolutely. What it. about an MP who decides they're not going to go up for re-election in five years' time? Mm-hmm. Is this their time to basically trouser as much money as they can? Oh, no, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it, it is. What about grabbing handfuls of What about notes? Goldsmith? Because you they're know, being paid for their access. I mean, look, a lot of these people are not brains, right? They are not the brightest mm. of their mm. generation that a major corporate is going to be falling over themselves to hire for their strategic insight. They are buying their time because of their access. This is cash yeah. for access. Yeah. Well, the carnival will will move on at some point. Naomi, do you think there will be enough pressure to lead to tighter regulation of second jobs? You know, if not an outright ban, because, of course, there are many kinds of of second job from, you know, working for the council to... um, Putting in a shift at A&E during a pandemic. Shift at A&E to sort of writing novels. You know, not every second job um, is is a kind of gateway Mm -hmm. to corruption. (laughs) But do you think that 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 could lead to exactly the kind of reform that the Tories did not want? I bloody hope so. Um, And if it doesn't, then Labour have got a drum to beat all the way to the next election. And of course, there is a big difference between the jobs where they are on the make and, you know, there are too many snouts and not enough teats and those that are just a distraction from their work but aren't, you know, lucrative and dodgy side hustles. Because I just don't see how it's tenable to be an MP with a second job. Almost every employment contract I've ever had to sign has had a clause in it saying, and you will not take on paid work, any other paid work. And and even some have had a thing about voluntary roles that may take up more of my time than than my employer would see reasonable as, as seeking permission. At the moment, we are facing multiple crises, whether it's climate change, a pandemic which now seems endemic, obviously all of the, the, the disruption with the economy over Brexit and other things. And it should be a full-time job at the moment to be an MP. And the good MPs that I work with do. I mean, they yeah. are exhausting themselves, keeping yeah. on top of casework, yeah. reading everything they need to do for a select committee. You know, And of course it is, it is, it is. And so those decent, hardworking MPs are, are you know, completely rushed off their feet because they're doing their job well. And if some MPs are spending 16 hours a week plus planning a legal defence for a tax haven, I'm not sure they're doing the job properly. And for Geoffrey Cox, it almost looks like being an MP is his second job. Not his first job and the, yeah. the other thing well, is the second job. it has been for the last two um, years. And I just don't buy the whole guff as well that you get about, oh, well, it's important for, you know, uh, MPs to have real world experience. Because you'll note that none of these MPs are uh, hospital porters or, you know, working in social it's care, a, it, changing adult diapers. It's definitely a particular slice of the real world. <laughs> one, that, one that involves the British Virgin Islands. Uh Unless you have uh, been involved in a lawsuit in the British Virgin Islands, you don't really know what it's like for average <laughs> Britons. I sort of briefly raised this last week, and then I, uh, Ian and I did this as yes, no god. Did. What else? You did. Uh, this unpopular opinion, sure which is now sweeping the nation's discourse. <laughs> um, if second jobs were to be banned, or many kinds of them were to be banned, mm. um, that would effectively, obviously, uh, be a sort of pay cut. For some MPs, uh, I've also seen the argument that, that actually being an MP is an odd, it, 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 it can be a sort of golden ticket. But for a lot of people, there's no guarantee of career progression. You don't know how long you're going to be in, in, in office. You don't know if you're going to ever progress beyond being a Which a is why they get a venture. very good pension. And, and you kind of, <laughs> and you know, you're obviously taking time out for your own career. I'm just giving, these, yeah, are, these yeah, are all the arguments yeah, that yeah. have been voiced. What do, you, what do you think of the case that if you do want to reform the system, that a pay rise, not, uh, as some people have suggested, tripling, but some kind of pay rise would facilitate that reform. 
Well, I think you can do the reform without the pay rise. And it is worth underlining that their £80,000 a year approximate salary is about three times that of the national average salary. And that's before expenses. So let's not be under any illusion that this is not a well-paid job. And the expenses are not a small level. And they are not. However, I do also agree with what you both said on that show, and I would commend it to, to listeners to hoover it up if you haven't, um, when you both said that there is an unnecessary and unhelpful populism around MPs' pay, uh, you know, and, and there just undoubtedly is. And you said that there are other ways people can make this kind of salary which don't attract the same level of criticism and scrutiny and intrusion into the lives of family members and, and all of that. And that, you know, you don't need to undertake a, a, a five-week gruelling reapplication for the job uh, every time the Prime Minister feels like it's a good time to go to the polls because yeah. they're, they're, they're being particularly popular. But, you know, maybe we just need to go for the full Athenian model and just be like, right, like jury service, your time's going to come around, you're going to be an MP and that's how we do it because, you know, frankly, when you look at the state of uh, a lot of our parliamentarians at the moment, it does make you despair and you just think, let's get rid of them all and start again. There's got to be a better yeah. way of doing this. The Athenian model, I feel compelled to point out, <laughs> sort of had... About I was looking six, at you when I said six <laughs> slaves per Athenian. That's sort of what allowed them to spend all day debating stuff. So. <laughs> um, finally, Alex Johnson, uh, we haven't mentioned him much, avoided the emergency debate on this to visit a hospital without a mask, obviously, because mm. uh, he doesn't need one. Even before the Patterson story really took off, the Tories had lost their poll lead, not because Labour had gone up, but actually because the Greens had surged, uh, but Labour hadn't, certainly hadn't gone down. You've been saying for a while that you think it, his, his hubris and overreach will yep. be doomed. He's a classicist. He'll obviously he will respect that. Fly to the sun, Icarus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're not doing, is this the end of Johnson? Because it, it's not. But what do you think has, has happened in the last week uh, that will be a problem for him? So a friend of mine that works in Whitehall tells me they are terrified of this narrative that they all have their snouts in the trough. And the reason they're terrified of this narrative is because so many of them have their snouts in the trough. So it's potentially a sort of endless parade of stories like the ones we've seen in the last 10 days. Yeah, yeah, not going to run out And that makes it really tricky because, I mean, do you deal with someone you know to be dishonest in the same way that you deal with someone you don't? Mm. Once the narrative that they're untrustworthy and they're looking to see what they can grab for themselves permeates through to people, everything is assessed through that prism. Every contract, every consultancy, every use of a departmental credit card, every biscuit requisition form is going to be looked at by the press and, and filtered by voters through the prism that they are dishonest. And if one accepts the cynical view that many of them are in this primarily to eat from the trough, you know, to use this as a golden ticket, then being in power is not enough. They need to be in power with no one looking too closely. Mm. And now everyone is looking very closely. So their ability to get rich is compromised, which is fatal for Johnson. I think they will be looking to replace him. I really do. Well, um, let's not set a deadline there. <laughs> let's not be a hostage to fortune. Let's not. But, you know, you know what they say about collapses? They happen slowly and then very, very quickly.
Our guest this week is Professor Peter Stott, a science fellow in climate attribution at the Hadley Centre, one of the world's leading bodies in climate change research. He's a pioneer of climate modelling and his work has brought him toe-to-toe with climate change deniers. He describes those encounters and more in Hot Air, the inside story of the battle against climate change denial. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the show. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Scientists are usually a modest lot who don't usually seek the spotlight. What was your motive for writing this book now? Well, the motive for writing it was really to tell my story, which on reflection over 25 years of climate science, and as you say, being confronted by the climate tonight, seemed quite a remarkable story, actually, that hadn't <laughs> been told. Mm. And, and, and now um, is a very opposite moment, which is, which is why the, you know, the publication has, been, has arrived at this moment. I mean, right now, of course, the, the crucial climate negotiations taking place in Glasgow. And, you know, as a scientific community, we've been... We've been relaying this message about the urgency of climate change for many, many years now, and, and it, this is now the moment that, that action needs to happen. And I think it's important that people understand the story about not only our science, but how that it was denied by the forces of fossil fuels, etc. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating story over uh, quite a span of time. Your first encounters with deniers, as you described them, were in the 90s. I mean, broadly speaking, what weaknesses do deniers exploit and have they had to change their tactics as the science has evolved and modelling has become better? I use that term, by the way, climate deniers, because, because the, the term that they would prefer, climate sceptic, I think, um, is, is an inaccurate term because scientists <laughs> are sceptical. It's, it's what we're trained to do, to be sceptical. And, and if anybody's been to a scientific meeting, and, and I describe those meetings in the book, actually, you know, they will, they will realise that we take nothing on trust from each other. We... We challenge what we're saying and we, we're, we're extremely sceptical. So the climate deniers were not being sceptical in that sense. They were, what they were doing is quite the opposite, actually. They were cherry-picking data to suit their narrative. They were not just doing that uh, and therefore claiming, basically doing really bad science that didn't stand up to challenge. But then in addition to that, they were indulging in, in attacks on, on the real scientists for alleged misuse of process. And, and the very first scientific conference I went to back in 1996, when I just joined the field of climate science, I really saw that happen. Ben Santa, a scientist who had made these groundbreaking discoveries that really showed the fingerprint of climate change, was being challenged by somebody called Patrick Michaels. And he was challenging him on, on cherry-picking data, but also accusing him of basically fraudulently distorting a big report from the UN, which is totally ungrounded attack. But I think as scientists, we're just not used to that. We were not used to such unfair attack. And have they had to sort of change their messaging over the last 25 years as the kind of conversation has moved on and the data has got better? They have, but rather recently, actually, people like Nigel Lawson were continuing to say things like global warming has stopped or there has been no change in extreme weather events. A sort of message that unfortunately was I think amplified not just in the sort of usual suspects like the Daily Mail, etc., but also even in, in the BBC, who sometimes allowed this sort of false balance to appear. But anyway, this, this, they were still saying this just three or four years ago. And I think what's, what's happened now is that they just had to abandon that type of messaging because everybody can see that's just a risable claim. Everybody can see extreme weather events are changing. We, we see it on our television screens. We see it, unfortunately, many of us experienced it directly ourselves. So what they are now saying, they've changed tack, and they're now arguing that climate change is just too expensive to do anything about, and that, you know, we should just live with it. And that is also a very fallacious argument, and there's plenty of science to back that up, basically, that if we don't deal with climate change, we don't reduce emissions, the impacts will be so devastating 
the cost will vastly outstrip the costs of, of doing something about this. You depict quite a rogues gallery of deniers here, including Nigel Lawson and, and Piers Corbyn, who's now more notorious as, a, as an anti-vaxxer. Now, it, it sort of makes sense to me that some of the deniers, and I think you see this a lot in the US, are in the pocket of fossil fuel companies. But many of the sort of right-wing pundits over here don't have a financial interest. So what's their motive, do you think? For me, the motive is related to, um, you know, from the right, is related to the idea that dealing with climate change re- re- requires, you know, things that may be associated more with the left, perhaps. It's so interventions by government regulation, legislation, etc., there is already, of course, legislation and regulation coming into this area as there needs to be in many other areas. Um, but I think, I think this is, this is where this, this comes in. It's a strange, I mean, I've wondered this a lot myself. This, this is quite a small rump of people actually who've been saying this, but they've had disproportionate influence. Their views have been massively amplified by quite a large section of the media, for example, who've amplified this message, this sort of, which I suppose is to support a completely free market anything goes type of argument back to the sort of thing that the, the, the people trying to deny the issue of climate change are now saying is they're trying to argue that there'll be lots of infringement of our liberties etc and so on and so forth and again this is a it's a very fallacious argument because if anything the impacts of climate change are what's going to infringe our, our freedoms our liberties because they're going to affect our lives so much whereas you know there are so many benefits to all of us through through our democratic processes and through you know our our collective decisions we make locally as well as nationally to take this challenge on will be will be much freer if we tackle climate change actually i would say and in the uk fortunately deniers aren't running the country but where have you encountered climate change denial on a state level well i think you know i talk about two particular places russia and the us in the book the book starts actually with as a prologue that, that goes back to 2017 when Trump had come in and when after the Obama years we, we seem to be in, in terms of well, we definitely were heading backwards fast in the US in terms of the recognition of the science and without the recognition of the science then you know we really lost on this one when we have a leader of the US saying that the, the science is wrong that global warming isn't happening basically denying all that science which he was doing in 2017 he was appointing people like Scott Pruitt to be head of the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, the body in America that's supposed to protect the health and well-being of the American people. He was saying that global warming was not happening, nothing to do with greenhouse gas emissions. So that's that was a hugely negative backward step and very worrying for us in the scientific community. And that's why we looked on the election of, you know, that the, the Trump didn't get in again. We were so anxious many of us including myself about that and then the other the other sort of state actor i talk about really is is putin a different kettle of fish i suppose but i had this extraordinary experience back in 2004 of going to moscow to what was being a very carefully set up bilateral meeting between russian and british scientists which turned into a into a sort of show trial of of the science in which these these climate deniers have been flown in from all around the world to confront us uh, to, to construct this narrative that was supported at, by, at the time, Putin's right-hand man, Andrei Lorinov, to support this narrative that the, the science was not showing global warming, that, in fact, you know, the temperatures were not changing, that what we were doing, were, were, we were accused of all sorts of, of crimes during that meeting. You know, we were, we, we were made akin to scientists who supported the use of eugenics in Nazi Germany, for example. It was quite extraordinary and, and, and rather hard to 
to cope with that level of aggression. And I think one of the saddest things of all about that was that the Russian scientists themselves in the Russian Academy of Sciences, in their own home, if you like, were excluded, were silenced, were there in the shadows, unable to speak. And that was, to me, was the most chilling aspect of this, that their own scientists were being silenced on this issue. Yes, that was that was one one part of the book which uh, which felt a bit like a thr- thriller where I was mm. I was sweating. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it, you know it felt to us on the on the ground. It just there were twists and turns in right from when we landed. You know, we got out of the plane and we got into a into a taxi that was then being driven by a Russian speaker who you know we couldn't even work out. We couldn't even direct our own movements at that point. And then from then on, it just got more and more extreme in a way in terms of in terms of that and and how we would defend ourselves in an environment that felt incredibly hostile and it really felt i mean the point about this the bigger the bigger geopolitical significance of this was that the kyoto protocol which had been signed in 1997 which i was actually at as a scientist the first agreement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions landmark agreement it in the end it depended on russia ratifying that agreement for it to come into legal force. It took until 2004, and it was just at that moment that Russia had this massive diplomatic leverage internationally, where, as a scientist, I really felt how these darker forces, you know, you felt like a small pawn in a, in a massive political battle, in effect. That was what lent it that thriller feeling at the time, you know, very much <laughs> we felt like that. Peter, we started life as an anti-Brexit podcast. And so we've talked a lot about how do you persuade those that don't agree with you? And I suppose the Remain community learned the hard way that giving people ever more facts and figures about the, the, the negative impact of Brexit fell on deafer and deafer ears. What have you learned about the best ways to counter the arguments that you hear from climate deniers? And you know, is it, is it about the data improving? Does that work? Or do you have to sort of use different language to try and persuade? Yeah, I think like, 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 you're, um, like you were saying, as, as scientists have had to learn to some extent the hard way on this one. And we have, we have definitely learned some lessons, I would say, over the years. We did collectively think that the data by itself would, would convince people and that adding in more data and more evidence would make the difference. Now, from my perspective, it's very important that we do that, right? Because we rely on evidence-based arguments, and I think that's one of our strengths, um, and it's certainly the strength in terms of the climate science, that it is based on evidence and not based on supposition. So that aspect is important, but it can't be the... It's not the only thing, and it's not going to win over people's minds by itself, especially the, the sceptical people or people who think, you know, who do distrust. So the the key aspect for me has been has been the storytelling. Actually, it's been telling those stories about, and this is partly behind the book. Actually, you know, telling the story of of my science and and, and its impacts and how it's been denied. But it's about telling relatable stories, particularly about people's individual lives and how it's going to be affected by climate change. So, so to give you a concrete example, we used to present talks where, or presentations where we would start with general talk about global warming, which is not a number that, I mean, it's a number, but it's not something that affects anybody directly, and then work more towards the specific. But more recently, when I've talked about this topic, I started the other way around, talk about the specific, talk about, um, you know, for example, this summer, we've had these devastating floods in Central Europe. We've had, we've had extraordinary heat waves in Canada, for example. And of course, we've also seen the impacts here in the UK, including a lot of recent flooding in particular, and relating that specific and the, the impacts of people's lives to the cause, basically, what it actually means. So relate the people, how they're feeling and how they're, what they're experiencing 
to the to the to the reason for the why that's happening. One chapter is about the 2009 so-called climate gate controversy involving Phil Jones and leaked emails, uh, which was subject to the BBC drama The Trick, uh, which some listeners may have seen recently. And what you point out in the book, and actually uh, it's, it's in the drama as well, is that even The Guardian criticised Jones at the time. Do you think the reporters across the board fundamentally misunderstood the story and what the wording of those emails meant and so that you you just had a lot of irresponsible reporting which made the story more damaging than it it should have been so there was a lot of irresponsible reporting for sure absolutely and and you know the the headlines in papers like the express stories in the mail for example were were just leaping on this story with great enthusiasm to to support their idea that you know this was global warming was not an issue and that actually we've been cooking the books and the thing with the guardian i think and why that was such a such a blow, I think, was that came that series of stories came in the February the following year after the the whole climate gate drama of November, and um, it was a it was a different sort of slant, if you like. It was a slant saying, well, you know, through this, the scientists have undermined the case for action. This was much more as the, as the trick de- deployed. Uh, uh, the, the scientists were the victim of, of this assault, if you like, and. There were some really good journalists on The Guardian, like David Adam, who wrote a great piece about Climate Gate immediately after it for The Guardian. But there were other people who wanted to construct other narratives that effectively blamed the scientists one way or the other. That's not to say that us scientists are completely flawless. Of course we're not. But the basic substance of what was being claimed in Climate Gate was totally wrong. That, that, you know, this was all being blown out of, this is all being taken out of context and used to construct a false narrative from the side of some people, the more on the environmental side, who wanted to blame us for having messed everything up in, in, you know, the Copenhagen Climate Conference, when the reason that the Copenhagen Climate Conference failed was, was a whole host of reasons and, you know, to be laid firmly at the door of the, of the politicians who were there, whose job it was to make that agreement. The book is not just about deniers. And in many ways, my favourite bit was actually the Kyoto conference mm-hmm. because you were quite an innocent going yeah, into yeah. that. And, mm-hmm. I, and I enjoyed looking at that through your eyes. And you were very excited that once you got past the scientific advisors to the governments and got time with the decisions makers, that would be it. That was the time for action. Mm-hmm. And then you found yourself in a room arguing about a single sentence for hours mm-hmm. on end. What is it like behind the scenes of this conference? Is it still um, thousands of uh, sentences in square brackets and just trying to chisel away at that? Yes, this conference in Glasgow. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, it's true that back in Kyoto, I was both more innocent, I suppose. You're right. But arguably, everybody was to an extent. The Kyoto Protocol was at least a first step. And that first step was saying, well, we're going to do something. And we're going to make some very initial steps. You know, it's got harder, politically harder, I suppose, over the years. And the way that the science is coming into that has got more more complicated. And there is a huge amount of complexity now. So yes, it's it's gone way beyond. We'll do something about this, and we'll we'll slash our emissions to a whole host of agreements around the ambitions that, that countries are going to sign up to. That the the funding that the developed world will give to the developing nations to compensate them for for, for, for loss and damage, but also to, to help them, you know, in, in an equity sense, to help them 
make this leapfrog to the to the new technology and the new way of doing things that we'll need to do. So it's hugely, hugely complicated. And how our science interacts with that is is also a lot more complicated. So I was at Glasgow and the contrast with what we what I experienced in nineteen ninety seven when there were literally two of us at two tables in the foyer opposite the doors where all the negotiators came in and out every you know, all the time into their negotiations and they went past us to get to the coffee machine. You know, in Glasgow right now, there is the most extraordinary complex of tented structures built around the big exhibition centre in, in Glasgow. It's a hugely complicated space in itself, which I suppose is symbolising the complexity of what they're trying to do with all these side negotiations going on about this text. You know, what I really hope is that the the urgency of the need to act and the really top line message about the necessity to keep global warming to well below two degrees isn't lost in that complexity. So the complexity is needed to make this whole thing happen because, you know, among other things, developing countries which need to, to get their people out of deep poverty need to be able to develop sustainably and there needs to be a global framework to enable that to happen. So there's all this complexity, but at the same time, there's some great simplicity that remains all the way through from the old Kyoto days that unless globally we reduce those emissions fast and particularly urgently now, we'll, we'll reach impacts that will be, that will be, um, devastating for, for m- most of the people of the planet. After reading about the struggle to agree on sort of differences between whether you can use the word likely, or even at some point, very likely <laughs> means that I will I will never complain about uh, the, the editing process again. Uh, but but finally, you you show that models in the nineties, you know, they were less sophisticated. There were certain things that were sort of understood, known, but perhaps c- couldn't be illustrated as clearly as you'd like. But you quote data from back then around the Kyoto time that was still very urgent. The the big picture, I suppose, was was not dissimilar to to, to what we have now. What is the main reason that progress has been so slow? I mean, is it deniers or is it, you know, sort of, like you said, arguments between the developed world and the developing world, foot dragging, rather than this just sort of outright denial? It's denial, but in its widest sense, I think, of of just collectively, as all, you know, collectively facing up to this challenge and taking it on and, and going from a, a feeling of either denial, outright denial, and saying this is not happening, or to despair and saying this can't be dealt with, into this much more active engagement of realizing, well, hang on, there are there are things that we can do. We can address this. Actually, some of the things that we can do will lead to a better way of doing things, less pollution on our roads. I mean, imagine how much how great that will be when we have non-polluting cars, for example, or you know that we heat our homes in a more sustainable way. Um, I think what the climate deniers did was that they they played on on people's all of our fears actually about what this might mean to either force us into denial or or to despair and not to not to take this on. And I think the other thing related to the big negotiations taking place in Glasgow right now, you know, it, unfortunately, of course, the political cycle is is not necessarily well attuned to this big global challenge because you know we're talking about generations and generations to come. And we're talking about what happens very much in this political cycle in the next year, two years, will affect not just ourselves, but the generations to come. And there's a bit of that sort of out of sync, I think, with how often political leaders think. I think they're now on the, largely on the page with that, if you like. But I think it's perhaps taken 
unfortunately, the actual toll of extreme weather events, the, the floods, the droughts, the people losing their lives or the people losing their livelihoods or their homes in huge numbers in, in, in just about every country who is, you know, who is represented by their leaders and their negotiators in Glasgow to really drive that message home. And I think that's probably what's actually changed things. Um, and now it's just super urgent that they get on and, and really nail this now and, and make those agreements. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Uh, it's a really eye-opening book. Hot Air is published by Atlantic Books. Thank you very much. Next up this week, some exciting news from the minds behind Oh God, What Now? and The Bunker. Each week, we react to the latest news in the UK and beyond. But there are long-term threats rising across the world that often go underreported. What happens when countries stop fighting over oil and start fighting over water? Was the insurrection on Capitol Hill just the beginning of the erosion of American democracy? And what does Vladimir Putin really want? Bunker panellist Arthur Snell is a former diplomat and counter-terrorism operative who's seen service in Yemen, Helmand Province and Zimbabwe. He's looking to answer some of the hardest questions in global politics on Doomsday Watch, a new 10-part podcast series. Arthur, we've been on the bunker together, but have you been on Ogle What Now? Yes, I have once, I think, when somebody else was ill. <laughs> well, nobody's ill. We just want you today. So welcome back. It's great to be here. It's a podcast with a scary title and a scary premise. Will it reduce listeners to tears? Well, it's sort of... Originally, I think we were planning to launch on Halloween. <laughs> so you could sort of see it as a as a kind of geopolitical horror movie. Uh, and some people love horror. For those that, that don't want to be horrified, I can actually pick up something that Dorian, you said when you were talking about Orwell just a, a few days ago, which I, I'll, I won't get the quote exactly right, but it's this point about the act of looking ahead and considering possibilities is itself an act of hope. And, and really, I suppose that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, that was a good quote from, from Rebecca Solnit. Well, actually, regarding all people would often say, oh, is this book is this book kind of depressing? And I, I was going, well, hopefully not. If you if you tell a story in an interesting way and you have a lot of kind of, uh, you know, clever, committed people trying to make sense of difficult moments. And that's certainly what I got out of, you know, the, your first episode. Uh, tell, can you say what the first episode is about? Sure. So we kind of started, it feels like you have to start with America, because I think the sense that a lot of people have, and, and this is you know not unique to listeners to this podcast, is that the, the world seems to be going through a very unstable and unpredictable phase. And sort of in the middle of that is the craziness of America. And the 6th of January insurrection, you know, the idea of an armed insurrection to reject the election results, it is, it's something we we associate with with kind of weak democracies, possibly countries that have just emerged from decades of dictatorship. The idea that that could happen in America, and then the ringleader of that, Donald Trump, still being fully in command of the Republican Party, is frankly pretty terrifying. And what was certainly for me very interesting, and this is really a podcast where we give experts the chance to you know share their expertise, my views aren't very important really, but what for me was interesting was talking to people who really know about this stuff. When you ask them the bold question, well, where does this go? Where does this apparent rejection of democracy head? Uh, a lot of them didn't have much of an answer other than I'm really, really worried and it could go in a really bad direction. Well, it's not just about where does it go. It's about where does it come from? And I'm a, a kind of big, big long view guy. And what I really appreciated here was that you had historians talking about weaknesses inherent in the Constitution 
the Southern Nixon Southern strategy in the 1960s. Um, you open with somebody that published a book, I think, in the early 90s about how countries collapse, how and, and how succumb to revolutions. Um, so presumably, I mean, this this seems to be, you know, as a listener, like the guiding principle of the series is to sort of get out of the living headline to headline and have a lot of clever experts Definitely. telling you why this has happened over a, over a larger time frame. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's absolutely right. And and partly, you know, my own background, I studied history at university. So I suppose I always like, like you, I like to be that kind of long view person. But it is also that of trying not to get stuck in the immediate noise of the presence and sort of say, well, what what is behind this? Why is this happening? What what are the underlying factors? And you know, part of that is is my own kind of dread phrase, my own lived experience, having as a young man sort of lived through the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks and then the West response in the form of, frankly, ill-advised sort of counterterrorism and interventions. And a lot of that has had an impact over a 20-year period. And we're starting to see the fruits of that impact in lots of different ways. So I was very keen to sort of to try to bring in that longer perspective. And what topics are you going to be discussing uh, later on in the series? One of the things that I, I say in the first episode is there is this sort of idea that everything is connected. And, and of course, that's a line from Syriana, that great movie with uh, George Clooney in it. And and that's a bit of a, of a sort of tagline for the series. So the second episode is all about China. And of course, one of the things that China has been able to do is to benefit from dysfunction in American politics. America is too busy tearing itself apart to really have a credible and considered policy on China. And this isn't just about preventing China from becoming more powerful, but it is about ensuring that China continues to try and stay sort of inside the global tent in terms of the rule book. So so we go, we go to China and that, that's a kind of natural extension. And then China leads you on to Russia where, of course, there is, there's some similarity there, the way that autocratic rulers are able to benefit in, in a way that democratic states find very difficult in this kind of chaotic world we seem to inhabit. And then uh, the series will cover a, a range of things, um, the sort of the end of the oil age, the Middle East, jihadism, disinformation, uh, the global water crisis, and so on. So hopefully it's one of those things that will give people access to a, an incredible range of really interesting experts on a very wide range of topics. And in a way, I think the the first episode, the American episode, is the most familiar. It, it, everybody knows something about American politics, whereas some of the episodes, I'm hoping that some of the listeners won't know anything about it. And that will be, you know, in, interesting and diverting. Well, the fun of, of this stuff, and I suppose, you know, the, one of the things that I find so exciting about journalism, podcasting and so on, is finding out things that you don't know that you start with a kind of you know working base of knowledge and then once you're talking to these experts you're taken in all directions can you give me an example of something that you kind of thought you knew but then it turned out that there was a whole other you know room in the house so to speak looking ahead uh, so we've got an episode looking at water and of course a lot of people particularly with cop 26 but in general a lot of people are very focused on the issue of climate change and rightly so but people tend to think a bit less about water itself and particularly the point that actually of all the water in the world not that much of it is fresh water is drinking water and and then cascading down from that the degree to which 
places such as including London, major global cities actually have rather fragile water supplies. And and the person who told me the most about that was Fergal Sharkey, you know, the the great sort of punk musician. So it's not just the facts that were were, were unexpected, but the, the, the person giving me the information was also unexpected. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I should say that the first episode is is hugely enjoyable, despite being called Doomsday Watch, um, and and strongly recommended. <laughs> and it is a new um, format, I think, for our company that we we do quite a lot of uh, get people in a room and have a chat kind of podcasts. And it was very exciting to hear something with di- lots of different voices, archive clips, music. It's got this kind of a quite sort of cinematic documentary feel well thank you i i'm really glad you got that and and uh one of the, i heard uh someone who'd listened to the first episode said it was like um adam curtis without the acid so that's really what we're trying to aim for <laughs> straight edge adam curtis exactly <laughs> so the first episode of doomsday watch is out now We're nearly at the end of the show, so it's time to find out the stories that will be shaping the news agenda next week on Under the Radar. Alex, what have you spotted? Okay, so this is not exactly a secret. It's just vastly underreported. France are taking over the EU presidency on the 1st of January. Macron is making a speech setting out their six-month plan on the 1st of December. They've been having loads of meetings between the Elysee Palace and the um, Internal Market Commission for the last few weeks. And I think the implications are huge. If the UK finds itself embroiled in some sort of dispute with EU during that time and with a new German government still trying to find its feet because we think uh, basically a coalition deal will happen mid-December, it's going to be a really, really tricky time for the UK in terms of uh, EU negotiations. And that's my tip and by then, the Republican candidate will have been selected yeah. to fight Macron. So he will have an internal, you know, big... He will have an enemy. Yeah, yeah he will, yeah. Um, what's your story, Dave? Well, all news has been under the radar for me because I was fortunate enough to be able to get away on holiday for the last week. So I've kind of missed everything apart from the farting volcano on La Palma, which threatened to delay my holiday uh, even more than it already was. But thankfully, I did manage to get there. But one thing I did clock that I haven't heard much repeated um, is a Telegraph story where they did a freedom of information request um, showing that 11,600 people have died from catching COVID in hospital. So they went in to be treated for something else, caught COVID while they were there and then died. And the term for this, I have learned, is called no-so-comical infection. And of course, those who hate the NHS will be blaming the NHS for this. But of course, the truth is that the NHS was only overloaded with so many COVID patients who were then able to Mm. transmit the disease onto others because of the government letting the virus run riot. And as somebody who had a a father who was ill for much of last winter and did subsequently die, but not of COVID, I cannot tell you the anguish of making the decision when he was poorly, should we try and just treat him at home? Or do we accept the fact that he does need hospital treatment, but run the risk of infection? And that is a horribly brutal choice for you to have to try and make. Plus, once they're in hospital, you can't visit uh, most hospitals still, I think, Which brings at the us brilliantly um, full circle to the first thing about com- compulsory, com- compulsory vaccines. Exactly. I mean, the exactly. idea, if there's that many people dying at COVID hospitals, the idea that some 
uh, workers mm-hmm. in hospitals would be saying, well, it's my right to not, cough and not to take a, a vaccine mm-hmm. until there's been more research. Mm-hmm. Fuck off, mate. Indeed. And that's the show. Thanks to Naomi. Thanks very much. Alex. Thank you. And our guest, Professor Peter Stott. Stay tuned for our extra bit for patrons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. It is a big shout out and thank you from me to Julian Pye, Kieran Waters, Christopher G, Emma Freeman, Bernie Purcell, Bill Cummings, Simon Burtwistle and Rob Kinnear. And thanks for the shot in the arm to Brendan Murphy, Neil Jones, Matthew Enright, Jennifer Scott, Nick Phillips, Jennifer Willits, Emerson and Rudy Hopper. And thanks from me to Ankarat Wells, Charlotte van der Waal, Mike Bernstein, Michael Cunningham, Alastair McKenzie, Tim Collins, Robert Campbell and Meat. See you next time. Oh God, what now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. In the extra bit this week, they've been around for over 300 years and still going strong in the nation's media. Political cartoonists sometimes earn more than journalists at the same paper. But do they have an impact? And are they funny? Naomi, what do you look for in a political cartoon, if indeed you look for something? (laughs) I mean, obvious recognisability of the figures being lampooned. I do find that some of them aren't immediately funny because they're so distorted they're so caricatured that i actually struggle to go you know which 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 political figure is that so i don't want to have to stare too hard and try and figure out who it is i want it to be a sort of quick and immediate thing that actually makes me belly laugh because it almost catches me by surprise rather Uh. than something i sort of snort through my nose quietly at and i also like it when two unrelated news stories get combined in one um, now, I know you're not a huge fan of Matt at The Telegraph, but I do think he's probably the best one at doing that and can sort of take, uh, you know, COP26 and Brexit and turn it into a, a thing or something like that. Well, yes, uh, <laughs> Alex, the, uh, Matt, MBE, mm-hmm. at The Telegraph, is the Adele of the pocket cartoon world, which is a certain kind of political cartoon. Andrew Marr says that he's had more influence on politics than any of his colleagues do you get the appeal? Are you the kind of person that would tweet, Matt nails it again? I think that's a little bit unfair on Adele, to be honest, <laughs> who I like and I think is very, very talented. Um, no, I don't get the appeal. But then again, I'm not the target demographic. I get none of the appeal of about anything that's in the Telegraph. So why would I get Matt? I do. If I get Matt, then I might start getting Sherelle Jacobs. Who? Oh, no, she's... Which is quite yeah, frightening. She's pretty wild. Um, yeah, I, I like the way that Matt is just, you know, you just think, he's sort of sitting there going, what should I do? And he's just like, I've got it. Two guys walking past a newsstand <laughs> with literally the subject of the cartoon. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else? out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. We don't have side gigs in the British Virgin Islands, so your support really does help. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 